All right, uh, let's pray. Lord, we are grateful, grateful for your hand of goodness. And Lord, thank you for your grace that is evidenced through, through our history, through the history of the world. And Lord, it is your story that you've given us. And Lord, as we sang these songs tonight, I'm just mindful of the promises that you've granted us and the relationship and, and something to sing about even tonight. And we are grateful for that. Thank you that though we may fail and that people may break covenants, you never do. Thank you, God, for being someone that is 100% reliable all the time. And Lord, we thank you for that. And we ask now you'd open up our, our Bible to us tonight and help us to appreciate who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Thanks, Joe. appreciate that we have ongoing jokes back and forth and uh, uh, we we joke with the marines eating crayons remember we were talking about this and so I send my little memes to him and stuff like that and it's candy corn season so I saw a little sign that said it's candy corn season for all you psychopathic crayon eating people so I thought uh, I sent that to Joe, just and, and he's still good to me. He comes, brings brings water. But anyways, we uh, we appreciate these guys, and I'm I'm glad you're here. And I'm I'm not going to go any further because I'm only one. You know, I don't have to, don't want to take on two of you. Anyways, uh, we're in Bible lists, and uh, this <clears throat> is the covenants of God. Now I've deviated just so uh, Yvette knows this because she's got Wilmington's book there. These are a compilation of lists that Wilmington, Harold Wilmington, put together, and it's a, you know, a whole bunch of various lists. Some are probably more relevant than others, but um, I came across the covenants, and then I decided I would break out a little bit and put it in a little bit more orderly format for what I have. Now, it should come up just about the same, a few different references and some things there, so it's not going to stick uh, perfectly to that book that you have, but... Um, the Bible covenants, we've covered these throughout our studies in the last uh, almost 10 years that we've been here, and I know before that as well, you've covered many times the covenants of God, but uh, I think it's good to review them, and, and tonight's sort of that, it's not real in-depth study on each one, but uh, rather the, the evidence of what God did when he, he basically um, covenanted with man, and there are several of them in Scripture. Um, it depends. The Christians differ on some of those. But uh, there's about seven, and I'm just going to lay that out. You could have more slightly or less because some of them are broken out into different portions of, a, of the covenant or expansions of some of the covenants. And I would say most likely, and as you go through Scripture, you'll find seven, and we're going to look at those in their uh, different formats tonight and uh, go over that. The first one that's found in scripture is what we call the Adamic covenant. It is the covenant with, a, with Adam. And it is often, when we talk about, for instance, dispensational theology, um, dispensations are basically time frames. And if you want to think it in very simple form, there were, it's not that God changes, God is the same. He's immutable. He's unchangeable. However, his interaction with mankind has changed in various times and through various ways. And he has expressed that in different time periods. And so these covenants fall under some of those areas. And in the Adamic covenant, uh, it's basically two parts of that. And the first one would be what we call the Edenic covenant. 
and uh, meaning out of Eden, and it's often called the age of innocence, the age of innocence. And it was really the first two chapters of the Bible, which we have everything being good, and there's no sin. Uh, and then chapter 3 comes around in Genesis, and there's sin, right? And innocence is lost. All of a sudden, sin enters in, and man's eyes are open to good and to evil. And before that, it was only good. We're going to read that because, and then the second part of that is what we would call the Adamic Covenant. And that is um, really the, uh, the covenant God made with Adam after he sinned. And uh, we're going to pick it up here. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also, to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to every thing that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food and it was so. And we have here this picture of uh, God in the garden, again, giving dominion for man. That's part of God's covenant he made with, Ab- with uh, Adam. And it was the portion of that, that time of innocence. And in that world that used to exist, it doesn't exist the same now. We're under the curse of sin in this world. Um, it, w- it was a different place. And it was a place where there wasn't anything that could harm you. But man was still given the directive, the authority to have dominion over the creation as sort of um, God's governor, so to speak, you know, and in charge of those things. And he was told to go forth and be fruitful, multiply and subdue the earth. And there's that part of the innocence that is in that. And we find there was a responsibility for man And this is part of the condition of that. Man could have continued to live in that garden and and be fruitful and multiply. Adam and Eve would have had children and they would have had children and continue to have children. And and the world would have been a different place because the death wouldn't enter in. You can imagine how quickly you could populate the earth and how quickly you could um, really go from just two people to billions and billions of people. That's for sure. But death enters into the picture. And that is part of the conditional part of God's covenant. In Genesis chapter 2, it says this, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And they were not without revelation. God gave them very specific commands. And I have said this many times before, Um, The question is asked, why would God in a perfect world where there's no sin, no evil, allow evil to come in or allow the potential for evil to come in? Because he could have created man without any will for evil. He could have created him in such a way that he never would choose evil. 
But he didn't. He created man with volition, which means he had an ability to choose yes or no. And the reason being, very simple, is that God wanted, even in a perfect world, for people to trust him by faith. And all they had to do was not eat of that fruit of that tree. That's it. That was an aspect of relying on God. He didn't say why you shouldn't other than to say you're going to die. He didn't say how that would happen exactly or the consequences fully of that. But he did tell them. And all they had to do is trust him. And they didn't. And so we see the first violation of a covenant. And it's not on God's part, but it's on man's part. And we see that in Genesis chapter 3, don't we? In uh, Genesis chapter 3, it says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And there, in this part of the aspect of the curse of the fall, which follows in more detail, you find um, God expanding this Adamic covenant, and he, in the very beginning of this, in his words, he promises somehow he's going to bring a redeemer in. And so I like that. Even though sin enters in and man breaks a covenant, it's not very long where grace isn't, isn't extended. And throughout all these covenants that God made with his people, you see grace, grace, grace over and over again. Um, really, at that point when Adam and Eve sinned, beginning of Genesis chapter 3, God could have just wiped them out and started again, Right? I mean, that's what we would do probably if you made a big mistake or something. You felt like that was, this didn't go right. But that's not what God had. Even before all that took place, he had a plan. And that's all part of God's power in, in that plan. But even though we broke a covenant, he has a promised redeemer. And he says to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. And it says, And in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So there's this aspect of what was going to happen under the curse. And you get, you know, the pain of childbirth. You have the, the toil of work that was something that would, be, it would come hard. Uh, before sin entered into the picture, uh, I would assume and it would be expected that it was very much easier to grow food or to harvest food. Probably didn't have to do anything except go out and pick it. It was there. And there weren't thorns and thistles and invasive species of things and all that stuff that they worry about today, right, in farming. And instead, it would have been uh, a different world. And yet now, from here on out, here it goes. And you can imagine every time Adam went out there and worked in his field or whatever he had cleared and, and by the sweat of his brow... And then he would have some crop grow and some blight would get it or something like that. And, and he would say, oh, man, if I'd just not done uh, a disobedient act, it would be a different world. Anyways, that's part of that Adamic covenant. And God provided in that um, a method of where he would somehow defeat sin. And that's Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 
Um, we go on to the second one, and the second major covenant that God makes is with Noah, right? And you, so you have the Noahic covenant, and that is found in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, and the flood was for the purpose of the judgment of sin. That's still under the Adamic covenant, the judgment of sin. And you come to Noah, and you have Noah, who was a righteous man who believed God, and those in his own household, uh, they enter into an ark that God designed and how he provided. And remember, he brought the animals to it, all of that. And they go through the flood waters, they end up on the other side of the flood, coming out of the ark, and God establishes a covenant. And that covenant um, in chapter 1, uh, verse 1 of chapter 9, this is all part of it. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Um, that was part of God's plan, remember, with Adam also. Uh, I think when God says something again and again, it's probably important that we do that. And, you know, it's really sad. I just read um, this weekend an article. There's a, um, a movement afoot among mostly Gen Z, I guess, you know, the, the younger um, females in particular, of promoting reasons why you shouldn't get married and why you shouldn't have children. And I find it's interesting in that both show the rebellion of, of people, mankind, and, and there may be indeed be reasons why they don't want to get married and have children because they've seen very failed marriages and failed men in their life and there's many other things. I'm not throwing all the blame on them. But it's interesting how we, we fight against what God commanded us to do. And if we would submit to God and follow his pattern whether it be with Adam or Noah or whatever else, it really does work. And today people are not having children. You know, certain, we, we are in, in Western Europe, um, the native population of Western Europe is, is just in decline. I mean, massively in decline, uh, population-wise. Uh, and, and their politicians are all worried that they're not going to have people to pay into the system, you know, all that kind of stuff. And yet, it's because we've refused to do what God told us to do. Uh, and I'm not saying we, and some of you, and, and so that he, everybody, not everybody can have children, and that's understood. Not everybody uh, is able to, or not everybody gets married, and, and those those things. But the mandate is there, and you can imagine if everybody decided, no, we're not going to do that. Well, funny how we rebel against God and things. You come to this covenant with Noah, and you see further rebellion. And it says, <clears throat> and in the fear of you and the dread of the earth or dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and generally that's true isn't it um, most animals are scared of people it doesn't matter if they're a great big grizzly bear or or whatever else i mean i wouldn't go out and tempt a grizzly bear but generally if they know you're there they aren't you know or other creatures out there um, generally they have a fear of people and that's still in them on every bird of the air on all that move on the earth and on the fishes of the sea, they are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So there's a part of the covenant that God makes, and it's actually a picture where you're not to go out and eat things that still have the blood in them. And they say, well, that is strange and is that for us and all that and I, I would say it's prior to the mosaic law it's part of the no noic covenant 
Um, and I still think it's a good principle because the life is in the blood, right? And there's a picture in Scripture of where the flow of blood is a means by where God used in, you know, you know, other times an atonement for sin, and then later his own lifeblood in that Jesus would die. And so, interesting thing. He says, you can eat all this stuff, the herbs, the things that move about, but not with the blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. In other words, God values life. And then this is the first instance where he says um, that life is so valuable that if man sheds blood, his blood should be shed. Now that sounds drastic, and I know there's lots of people that disagree with capital punishment, but God is the one who instituted it. And it says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And that's the reason. Because when you violently go or just in, you know, go to shed man's blood, not talking about accidentally or, or, or you know, inadvertently or something like that, or in self-defense, there's means of that, but going out and murdering. The Bible is clear that if you intentionally go kill somebody, that your blood is really required on you of that in a governmental way, in a judicial way. Um, and there was the establishment of government in Romans 13 that talks about that in that place. And by the way, the further societies get from that, um, and, and, I, and I say it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be used every time. There was always a measure of grace and mercy in God's plan. There were people that were, should have died under the law that they broke and they didn't. And that's just God's mercy. And thank the Lord because none of us would be here. But I'm just saying this, the further government gets away from those things of harsh penalties for killing, there will actually be more death. And so by going away from it, you actually cause more death. And that's hard to get through in a society that thinks it has to be endlessly empathetic to everything and everybody and easy on crime and easy on, and, and it's, it actually causes more death and more sin. God knew that. So God says it's going to be a harsh penalty. He lays that out. Now, I understand there are believers and others and maybe even here that would disagree with that, but I would just say this, that consider it and, and think about it as well. And it's a, it's a heavy cost. I don't know if I'll get through all these tonight, but anyways. And as for you, be fruitful, multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, and as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, of all that goes out of the ark, every beast of the earth. So this covenant was with the whole earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall I f all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And I, I always kind of think about that in the sense where um, we're quick to use any flood as a biblical proportioned flood. And no, the flood that is mentioned in Genesis is a worldwide event. Um, and if we have major flooding, like in a hurricane or some other place, you know, lots of rain. Uh, last week in 
portion of New Hampshire. I have a friend down in Nashua. I think he received almost seven inches of rain overnight. And it was a lot of water in, in a very wet summer. But that's not a biblical proportioned flood. All right? Um, the flood of Noah in Noah's time, the flood of God, is a one-time event. And it's a good thing. It really is. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. So not just Noah's generation, right down through to today. I set my rainbow in the cloud or my, and, it, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God goes on to say to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant. Uh, here's the the covenant God establishes with, and and again I I find it um, where today unfortunately the rainbow has been hijacked of sort. You really don't hijack a rainbow. I'm sorry. Um, if anybody can do that, let me know. Uh, but it is symbol the symbolic nature of the rainbow has been you know taken today to um, you know symbolize really you know the the homosexual movement and not just that all the weird stuff you know. That the na- they come up with a different name every day for that stuff. And it's really man's perversion against God's order uh, right from the beginning. We read in Genesis, part of the Adamic covenant, male and female, he made them, right? And today, it's everything goes, right? And uh, it doesn't change truth. It doesn't change facts. It doesn't change the rainbow. And when I see a rainbow... A natural rainbow out there, I think of the flood, and I think of the covenant God made after the flood. And I thank the Lord that judgment has passed from me onto someone else, which was Jesus. And all my pride and sin and everything else has been placed upon Jesus, and my shame was placed on him. He took my shame, and he clothed me with glory. And it's so sad today that people want to demonstrate their shame as something to glorify in it's too bad God said to Noah this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth and again in it's reiterated in the New Testament 2nd Peter chapter 2 verse 5 and did not spare the ancient world but saved Noah one of eight people a preacher of righteousness bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly that's the context of the judgment that is to come yet in the future Peter reminds the readers in his letter um, it happened before and it's going to happen again and don't think you'll escape turn to Christ right all right Point three, the Abrahamic covenant. And we've touched on this quite a bit in the last couple of years when we went through um, the life of Abraham, and we've touched on that many times. But in essence, the Abrahamic covenant is the promise that God made to Abraham, uh, and he made that promise to the descendants of Abraham as well. And 
We'll read Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. This is the man who had no children yet. And I will bless you, and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And this is part of the Abrahamic covenant. God takes Abraham and just shows marvelous grace to him. And he doesn't do it based on a condition either. He just says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. And I'm glad he does that. Um, Some of this covenant would be, you know, it's not conditional in that he was said, but if you sin or if you you don't believe me fully or if you waver in the faith or those kind of things, I won't do this. God still did it. In spite of Abram and Sarah, you know, Sarah making their own decisions on how they might have an offspring. And remember with Hagar and, and all the things that Abraham tried to do, God's plan was still to make him a blessing. And that's expanded on throughout several portions in the book of Genesis. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were then in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who appeared to him. And we find not only is he going to bless him with um, the seed that would come out of his generations of people, but he would give him a land also. And that's part of that Abrahamic covenant. He promised to do that. Um, It's laid out further through the book of Genesis and, and, and expanded on. And we've looked at that in the life of Abraham. But in Genesis 13, you have uh, God expanding the, basically the, the geographic boundaries and tells him more specifically what that land would encompass. Um, you come to Genesis in chapter 17. He reestablishes that covenant. And then in Genesis 22 as well. Let me go back to Genesis 22. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven, and he said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. This is in the context of Abraham getting ready to sacrifice his son, Isaac. But he says, Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. And again, a promise there of that. And in this verse here of, of Genesis twenty two eighteen, there's the promise that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in the seed of Abraham. And that's also a messianic or a promise of a redeemer, a promise of a Messiah to come. And that's part of that. Uh, so there's different aspects or parts of that, that covenant, but that's the basic part of it. Uh, the next one expands on the Abrahamic covenant, and it is found in Deuteronomy under, in the time of Moses, but it's often called the Palestinian covenant or the covenant of, that dealt with the land, the land covenant, sometimes it's called. And there to the descendants of Abraham, God reaffirms his covenant, or even some have argued makes another covenant. Uh, 
And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, it says this, Now it shall come to pass, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and by the way, the blessing and the curse, that's part of the conditions of this covenant. If they followed God, it was a blessing. If they didn't, it would become a curse to them. And by the way, that's the law, isn't it? Follow the law of God, it's a blessing. If you don't follow the law of God, it is a curse. And it's there for that. But anyways, he goes on to say, And blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice, and excuse me, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children will all with all your heart and with all your soul, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity. So here's a promise, a covenant God says, if you'll turn back to me, I will bring you back from captivity. We see that time and time again in the in the Jews' life, isn't it, right? They went off into slavery or became enslaved by the foreign enemies around them. And later on, the great captivity that would take place, and God would bring them back. And the very evidence that, I think the fact that the Jew is in the land today, is evidence that God upholds his covenant. And it says, And gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. That's happened several times in the history of the Jew. Most recently in 1948, with the establishment of the land of Israel, the state of Israel as a country, again. And Jews from all over the world came back to Israel and are still returning. If any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and your heart of the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So this covenant is not only a, a land covenant, it's a heart covenant where he wants people to love him. That's part of the condition. Also the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies and all those who hate you who persecute you. I think that's evidenced as well, isn't it? Every single empire that's ever come up against the Jew has fallen. And when Hitler and his cohorts came up with the final solution to exterminate every Jew that they could ever find, it only actually furthered God's covenant in that it established a land for them to return after the victory was secured over the Nazis. And if, they, if Hitler had not done that, it would be arguable that they would, that would not have happened. <clears throat> Matter of fact, it probably wouldn't have happened under Franklin Roosevelt because he was against it. And Franklin Roosevelt died of a stroke just before the end of World War II. And you had Truman take over, and Truman was favorable to the establishment of the state of Israel. Think of God can remove presidents who stand in the way, perhaps. I don't know the mind of God, but I just can tell you that I think, you know, things could have been different if if certain people were still on the scene. God's timing's always perfect. And uh, I would say back to the Abrahamic covenant, I will bless them that bless you, I will curse them that curse you. 
Bless the Jew. Bless them. Not bless their sin, but bless the Jew. Don't bless the rejection, all that, but bless them because out of the Jewish people came the Messiah, the Savior, and he is for all people everywhere. And they are special people, God's people, the apple of his eye. And you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments which I command you today. So a future hope here, part of that. The Lord your God will make you abound in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your body, in the increase of your livestock, in the produce of your land for good. For the Lord will again rejoice over you for good as he rejoiced over your fathers. And if you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in the book of the law, and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, right? It's part of the condition. And it was a covenant that God established. Uh, The next one, move along here, is the Mosaic covenant. And I'm not going to read all of Deuteronomy chapter 11. But in Deuteronomy 11, it is essentially the keeping of the statutes. And under the Mosaic covenant, which also was conditional, it either brought God's direct blessing in obedience or direct cursing in disobedience upon the nation. And again, very similar in its, in its um, form in the previous covenant. Uh, for instance, Exodus chapter 20, what's in that chapter? Ten Commandments, right, the law. And God gave the law directly to the people. Uh, the finger of God writing them on stone, isn't that something? God giving his law. In the... Throughout the books of Moses, the law is not only limited to those ten that we often call the Ten Commandments, right? But there's about 600 commandments of God. 300 negative and 300 positive. So if you don't keep the law, this will happen. If you do keep it, this will happen. So if you look through them, the Jews came up with about 600 of them uh, altogether. And we we see of those, uh, or see those. And then... In some of the historical books of the Old Testament, particularly Joshua through Esther, we see how Israel succeeded at obeying the law, and we also see where Israel failed miserably, right? We've been going through the book of Judges, and we see both that, right? We see the failures, and as soon as they would turn and repent, God would bless them and have them victorious over their enemies. The end of... uh, the Mosaic Covenant down, I think Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 26. I'm just getting down there on myself. 25, 26. <clears throat> the Lord says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And um, it's important to understand that this promise God gave them did come with two sides of it. Uh, And I would just interject something here. Um, Christians and different groups of Christians over the years have differed on where these covenants stop. Are they only, like for instance, this we call the Mosaic Covenant. Is it only to Israel? Or is it also to the church? Or is it also to individual believers? And I find like some people will claim that when they're dealing with the blessings of God. Like you'll hear some of your health, wealth, and prosperity preachers. They will gladly jump on these and talk about the blessings of God. But they are not quick to talk about the curses. 
And I would say that I think keeping with the proper hermeneutical principle, you know, how to interpret, is that you always ask the question, who's this written to? And it's very specifically written to Israel. It deals with them as a nation. It's spelled out as such. Do we, in principle, also benefit from obedience to God? Absolutely. Will he bless us when we obey? Yes. But the blessings attached to the Jew also carried with it an earthly blessing of the land and victory over their enemies and those kind of things. And that is not a promise he gives to his church, per se. Jesus said to his disciples, I send you out as sheep among wolves, right? Lambs among wolves. That doesn't sound very good. He didn't say that to Israel. He said, if you obey me, I'll take care of the wolves. But for the Christian, we were called to go with Jesus to sometimes a life of suffering, uh, a life of hardship, a life that was going to, and, and God's people suffer, the righteous suffer with the unrighteous too. And that was the case with believers of every age. They suffered when people around them sinned, and that happens. Uh, okay, then the next one, the Davidic covenant. <clears throat> The Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it says here, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, And have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall their sons of wickedness oppress them, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore, as previously. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, And have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. So here's part of the covenant of David. I'm going to establish a house of David. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers. That's a term of referring the believers when they die they rest. They are at rest. Uh, It didn't mean that he ceased to exist. He didn't go into a soul sleep or anything like that. But you, your time here on earth, your work is done. And he says this, I will set up your seed after you. And he did. Solomon comes along, right? And then, you know, through Solomon's sons and all the way down through. And God establishes through David a lineage of a household. And it's going to be a household of faith, right? He says, who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He's referring to somebody's kingdom, not just David's. He says, there'll be a king after you, David. And this is a great promise. I love this Davidic covenant because it's the promise that there'll be a ruler who will be on David's throne or connected to David's throne. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That is not an earthly king. You cannot find an earthly kingdom where it has lasted forever. You won't. There's been some long dynasties. But even some of the longer ones, like you know, the reign 
of the, the British monarchs, I mean, you, you don't even go back a thousand years. Actually, you can go back less than that. I mean, if you look at the lineages that come out of that, just a few hundred years. Um, you go to some of the longer dynasties that have been on earth even, and they all were short-lived. But there's one whose kingdom will last forever and whose king, whose king will be forever. And that's Christ, isn't it? He says, I will be his father. He shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. He's referring to Israel here. And but my mercy shall not depart from him, for I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And again, he reiterates that. And in the lineage of David, remember, it didn't take very long before you had um, a bad king in David's family, right? You had David, Solomon. Who's the next one? If you were with Rehoboam, right? We were covering this in Wednesday night. If you missed Wednesday night, you'll have to watch the videos or whatever. Rehoboam was a big name. Why? What happened? What did Rehoboam do? He split the kingdom. In just a matter of three generations, it looked like David's throne is done. God must have made a mistake there, right? Not at all. Not at all. Instead, you have in the New Testament, the lineage, Matthew opens up with the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And that genealogy goes back to Abraham, and by the way, the genealogy that's recorded in Matthew chapter 1 and the, ne- the other genealogy that's recorded in the house of David is in Luke chapter 3. And 1, Matthew writes to the Jews, right? That's, he's, he's presenting Messiah to the Jews. That's the angle in which he writes his gospel. The genealogy of, of Matthew goes back to Abraham. Why would that be important? Abraham. Why would that be important to the Jew? Start of the Jewish people. And you go through that and you have these generations, like 14 and then 14 and 14, and you come down to David. And David, why is David important? Because God made a covenant with David too, didn't he? He said, your kingdom's going to be forever. And then you come down and you have in that genealogy, which by the way is the legal line. It, it looks like Mary's line, but it isn't. It's actually the line of Joseph. Um, and Joseph would have been the legal earthly father of Jesus. He was not his biological father, but he had the legal right as father. And so it was important for the Jews to establish a legal line back to David. And Joseph met that criteria, and that genealogy in Matthew 1 is Joseph's. Come to Luke chapter 3, and it's an entirely different genealogy. And, and critics of the Bible say, see, they can't even get the genealogies right. Oh, they're all messed up. That one is the line of Mary. And the line of Mary was the bloodline. And you'll find Mary's line actually goes all the way back to not Abraham, but before Abraham. Who? Keep going. First man, Adam. Goes back to Adam. Why would that be important? Because we're all in the line of Adam, right? Adam broke the covenant with God, and I need someone to fix it. And so 
There's Adam's line all the way through. And by the way, David's in that one too. So the bloodline follows through to Jesus. His mother was a descendant of David. The legal line, his earthly father Joseph was in the line of David. And this fulfills the establishment of the Davidic covenant in Jesus. In 70 AD, the records of the Jews, which were held on the Temple Mount, the genealogical records, were destroyed, most of them. There are still some that are pieced together from family histories, but it has been said, and I don't argue with it, there are only two definitive genealogies in the Jewish history that still survive today that date prior to 70 AD, and they're both found in the Bible, and they're Jesus's. Jesus is the only Jew today that can definitively say he is in the house of David. God is God, isn't he good? And he's the covenant God. Luke 1, 32, and he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. There it is. And of his kingdom there will be no end. When Luke writes this, the Jews reading that would go right back to David and they would say, this is the one that the the scriptures promised a thousand years before he came. And then lastly, the new covenant. And this this is great. See, all these other ones, they deal very specifically with Israel. Uh, well, not all of them, because the Edemic covenant is with, with all people, Gentiles as well. The Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, that gets it more specific, the Jewish people. But not only Jews, remember, all the nations of the earth, there's a blessing attached to that. Then the land, that's more the Jew. The Mosaic covenant, the law given to the Jew. Um, Davidic covenant, that expands it, the Jew, but the kingdom of David There'll be somebody that will be in that kingdom forever, and that's Jesus. You come to the new covenant, and that encompasses everybody. In Jeremiah chapter 31, it says this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Again, very specific to them, but look what it says. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That was under Moses, right? My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And this is the first time where you see um, God's promise of taking away sin forever. Uh, and, And again, it's in context specifically given to Israel. But it's going to encompass the, the expansion of that new covenant, of course, is seen. You come to the New Testament which is the new covenant, right? And you remember Jesus, he sat with his disciples at a meal and he breaks bread with them and he shares the fruit of the vine. And as he does so, he says of the fruit, remember of the vine, he says, this is my blood, which is shed for you, the blood of the the new covenant, right? 
In other words, Jesus' vicarious death and his shedding of blood would be for the salvation of sinners and the remission of sins or the taking away of sins. And, and so much, of course, the New Testament explains that. And does that only encompass the Jew? No. For whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's everybody. Jew, Gentile. And, of course, you go out through the book of Acts, and that's the scope in which the gospel goes out, the, the, the message of salvation through Jesus Christ, his finished work at the cross, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, and also to the Gentile, as we would say. He goes out from there and does it. And I'm thankful for that. Um, and Jesus came not to do away with those covenants. According to what he said in Matthew 5, he did it to fulfill the law and the prophets. And we find the fulfillment of God's covenant in the final covenant, which is the new covenant, which is not completely fulfilled yet. The part of salvation has been, but the part of the fullness of the knowledge of God hasn't yet. And part of that is in process of, well, when we do world evangelism, you know, we're bringing the gospel to the nations. I do believe ultimately that will be fulfilled um, in the millennial kingdom, which is when Christ returns to the earth after the judgment and the tribulation period, sets up a thousand-year reign, and it is during that time the fullness of the knowledge of God will permeate the earth like never before. Um, it will be a very unique time in his, his dispensations in that. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And may I just point out in closing that throughout every single part of God's plan and his covenants and all of that, it has always been a method of salvation by faith. For Adam and Eve, they didn't have the big picture. All they knew is that somehow the seed of a woman would someday come and would crush the serpent's head. Didn't know his name. Didn't know he'd be in the house of David. Didn't know any of that stuff. God said, just trust me. So they had to trust him. And I think that's seen in the picture that they allowed God to clothe them with animal skins. In the process, something had to die for that. And there was the shedding of blood. The very first death that occurs in history occurs at the hand of God when he has to have something die, substitute for someone else. And I expect to see Adam and Eve in heaven. Although there's no verse that says specifically they trusted him by faith, it is seen in the evidence of how they were clothed. It makes sense in the pattern. And then that goes straight through scripture. Come to Abraham. says, Abraham, get up, get out of the land, go, and I'll show you. And I'm going to make you a great nation. Didn't know how that was going to happen. Didn't know exactly. God gave him a few more details, but just trust me. That's faith. You come to... Uh, you know, previous to that, Noah, Moses later, you come to David. David didn't know how his kingdom would last forever, but God did. And David, by faith, looked ahead to the fulfillment of what God was going to do. And I imagine there were a lot of people in the day of Jeremiah, in the day of Rehoboam and others, when the kingdom split and they realize that man it doesn't mean it doesn't i don't think god is going to be able to fulfill that one and yet here we are today tonight in matawaska maine we're still talking about the seed of david and the one who's given us a new covenant in his blood
Lord, we're grateful. Grateful for your promises, your covenant.